So one in 20 patients who are discharged from the emergency department after an opioid overdose will be dead in one year. What a chilling statistic, right? This was just published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2020, which by all counts has been dominated by the COVID pandemic. But, you know, let's not forget the little thing, oh, the opioid epidemic, which still rages on and perhaps even more so as people are physically distanced. Hey there, I'm Michelle Lynn from Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, and I'm excited to share with you this special podcast about an impactful national initiative called Get Wavered to Address the Opioid Epidemic. So I can tell you in, in many of the EDs I've seen, the growing trend is to use non-opioid adjuncts or limiting or even withholding the use of opioids for different pain syndromes. But that focuses on curtailing or taking away interventions. Also, it doesn't get at the root of the problem, really, and that is opioid dependency and addiction. But you know what? What does help get to the root of the problem is the introduction of a medication called buprenorphine and the combination suboxone therapy of buprenorphine plus naloxone into the emergency medicine armamentarium for patients with opioid use disorder. Now, although buprenorphine is such a game-changer medication for these patients, writing a buprenorphine medication, unfortunately, isn't like writing a prescription for methadone or oxycodone. So here to talk about it more is a very special alien guest, and he'll be discussing all things buprenorphine, why it's crucial for providers in the ED to understand what it is, because you know what, more people will be on it, and the special DEAX waiver. It's Dr. Alistair Martin. Hey, Alistair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. And shout out to Michelle for a second for creating such an incredible network. One of the most impactful experiences that I had in my residency program was actually through Michelle's program, the Chief Resident Incubator. Part of why we have been successful with Get Wavered has been because we've got this initial foundation of this grassroots campaign through the folks that I met through the Chief Resident Incubator. So thank you very much, Michelle, for having me. And thanks for helping to spur innovation throughout the emergency medicine sector. Thank you. Thank you. The check's in the mail as we speak. So Dr. Alistair Martin, he's an emergency physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and a faculty member at Harvard Medical School. He is also the founder of Get Wavered. So you say, what is Get Wavered? You may be thinking that. Well, it's a wonderful national organization aimed at making it easier for providers to help their patients struggling with opioid addiction and helping them to initiate their recovery journey. Get this, starting in the emergency department. So, Alistair, you know, I love origin stories. How did this all get started? How, what got you all interested in opioid use disorder and specifically suboxone therapy? It's a great question, Michelle. Look, you know, I'm certainly not a specialist. I have no extra training in addiction. I'm just an ED doc. And the bottom line is my story starts like many of the stories that you all have probably experienced yourself. I was on shift back as an intern in 2015. And it was maybe my second or third overnight that I'd ever had, like 2 a.m. on a Friday night. And I had this woman who came in who was in her early 30s with her suitcase. And in my ED, we call that the positive Samsonite sign. Patient comes in with suitcases, you got a problem. <laughs> and so she came in with a suitcase and I said, you know, let's bring this woman back. Let's hear the story. I'm so curious. And turns out that she had six weeks prior to being in my ED, she had fallen down the stairs at her son's daycare terrible ankle fracture, ended up getting an ORIF at some outside hospital and was discharged on oxycodone. She found that over the course of the next couple of weeks, when she tried to stop taking it, she could not feel normal, felt horrible. And something was just off when she wasn't taking the medication. She then sort of 
reverted to using some pills that her husband had in her kitchen cabinet. When that ran out, she ended up asking friends and family. And then she actually got, got all the way to the point where she was actually coordinating with a dealer in her town to get pills. Goodness. Uh, that night, though, she had basically made a decision. She's like, look, I'm done with this. She was a mom of two. And, you know, she even showed me the text messages that she sent to the dealer. She said to him, look, I'm done with this. I need to get help. Please delete my number. The dealer texted back and I saw this text. And I'm getting chills even thinking about it. Thank you. Good luck. That's all he responded. Wow. An hour later, he heard a, she heard a knock at her apartment door. She went downstairs. It was her dealer who said, look, you know, recovery is hard and the recovery process can be really difficult and people you know, kind of struggle. So I want to give you some for the road for free. He gave her an extra about half dozen oxycodone tabs. And basically she took them. And her husband thankfully was there, saw this interaction and intervened and said, look, I don't know what's going on, but we need, we need help. Like you can't, we, we can't do this by ourselves. It was Friday night. They had nowhere else to go. They ended up coming to the emergency department and sitting across the examining room uh, table for me, right? Telling me this story, and I'm this like, you know, two week old intern. And I'm like, of course, I'm going to help you. Don't worry about it. Sort of put my cape on, said, yes, of course, we've got a plan. Left the room, had no idea what the plan was. What's but the I plan? Knew- What's the plan? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I knew that I was going to do something. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to do something. This is why I became a doctor. Went and told my attending, look, we've got this woman here. She needs help getting her addiction under control. And she's asking for us to help change her life. And my plan is I want to admit her to the hospital. And I want to, I knew that because I had rotated at that hospital in medical school, I knew that they had an addiction consult team, admit her to the hospital and call the addiction consult team. And he said to me, that sounds wonderful, but that's not what we do here. Hmm. Discharger. And I remember that being like the longest walk ever from my attendings desk back to the room. And by the way, that attending is a wonderful attending, kind attending great doctor who was also an agent of the status quo and who really was just sort of like uh, responding to a system that was not set up to help patients like her. And so that's, that's what got me into this, the realization that she was far from the last patient that I was going to discharge without any sort of bridge to treatment, without any hope of getting her recovery journey started. For her specifically, you know, we printed out this list of detox paperwork. Half those numbers don't work. The other half you need some fancy insurance for. I have no idea if this woman ever got help, but I hope she did. And the countless others, dozens or so others that I wasn't able to help also inspired me, motivated me to help figure out how can we recreate our healthcare system, our emergency department uh, workflow so that we can help patients like her get help. Uh, that is an incredible story. And, and kudos to you for, you know, keeping the story in your heart and making a plan. You're making a grander plan. And I love that. Well, for those of uh, our listeners who are not as familiar with buprenorphine or the combination Suboxone, tell us some more things. Drop some knowledge bombs for us about it. Yes, absolutely. Here are three knowledge bombs, three numbers that I want you all to remember. The first number is zero you know how we love randomized control trials. Well, there was a randomized control trial that was done that randomized patients who were looking for treatment for their opioid addiction into two groups. The first group was what I did, the detox group. I gave this woman a you know, handout and said, here, here's some detox places for you. The second group was a medication group, medication for addiction treatment with buprenorphine. They followed these two groups out to see what happened over the course of the year. 
the first number I want every listener to remember is the number zero. Zero percent of the patients who got started on the detox group were still in recovery one year later. Let me give you one other number. 25% of the patients in the detox group were dead by the end of the year. When you look at the buprenorphine group, 75% were still in treatment a year later, still in recovery. Okay. There is no other intervention you can give an individual that has such a stark difference. The ability to be literally the, the life-changing intervention, the inflection point is embodied uh, when you think about uh, taking care of a, a patient with uh, opioid addiction. The, ne- the second number I want folks to remember is the number 80 for 80%. When France liberalized prescription of uh, buprenorphine back in the 90s, they had an opioid epidemic that was on par with where we are now. They liberalized prescription buprenorphine use so that all family medicine docs could give it without any extra waivers or with any extra restrictions, et cetera. Their opioid crisis dropped, overdoses in that country dropped by 80%. Okay. So when you liberalize, when you give access, make it easy. Don't make people jump through firing hoop, you know, fiery hoops to get this medication. People's lives are changed. The last number I want folks to remember is the number 92. 92% of physicians when surveyed, ED physicians, except did this survey in 2017. 92% of ED physicians, when surveyed, said, I do not work in an ED that allows me to or has access to buprenorphine in the ED. Okay, so let's run those numbers back. 0% of the folks who do what we currently do now in a randomized control trial, which is giving people detox, 0% of those folks are still in treatment, 20% of them die. 80% was the reduction in overdose deaths out in France when they liberalized prescription uh, buprenorphine. And yet 92% of ED providers do not work in a place where we can give buprenorphine easily to people in the ED. And so that sets us up for an incredible opportunity to really revolutionize the way that we take care of patients in the ED. And one last shout out on the drop some knowledge bombs piece is Gail Donofrio. Bonus bomb. Bonus bomb uh, <laughs> is Gail Donofrio, an incredible physician, ED physician, the chair of Yale's ED, did an incredible study that found that when you randomize patients in the ED to getting buprenorphine or not, the folks who got medication for addiction treatment out of the ED had significantly higher rates of engagement and the reduction in their recovery process, reduced self-reported illicit opioid use, and also uh, decreased the use of inpatient addiction treatment services. So this is a no-brainer. Absolutely. So what I hear is that there's really no reason we shouldn't be doing this. And I can't believe we haven't done it sooner. France has really gotten it together, by the way. I'm super impressed that they did that. So tell me more. So France had a way to liberally prescribe it without any extra hoops. What's our current process in, in getting us uh, the ability to prescribe it? Yeah. You see, because in America, it's not that easy. Never. There's, there, there's always got to be a catch to doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it is incumbent on us as individuals, as individual physicians, as citizens, to push on our policymakers to change the system. None of these things are immutable. Uh, and this one, for sure, with buprenorphine and the uh, regulations around it are not set in stone. But let's take a quick history lesson. In order to prescribe buprenorphine, unfortunately, you need to get a DEAX waiver. It's the only medication that you need some excess extra waiver for. Now, why is that? 
Well, why that is, is because when you go back in the history books, in the early 1900s, an act was passed called the Harrison Drug Act. The Harrison Drug Act stipulated that physicians could not use drugs to treat drug addiction. Why? It was because back in the day, for folks who were alcoholics, physicians used to prescribe a medication called laudanum, which was opium. So they would remove the alcohol addiction <laughs> and instead give them a debilitating, effectively heroin addiction, right? It was leading to overdose, uh, overdose deaths and, and all of the sequelae of that. So that drug act, the 1914 Harrison Drug Act, meant that physicians could not use drugs to treat folks with drug addiction. And that held, that's, the, that's sort of like the law of the land up until the early 2000s when Orrin Hatch and a couple of other co-sponsors in the Senate created the Data 2000 bill, which basically said, okay, physicians, you cannot treat drug addictions with a drug except in one circumstance. If we waive the initial law, and the only way that we'll waive the initial law for you is if you get a, a waiver from the DEA. That's why we call it a DEAX waiver. So it's, a, it's an extra X. It's added to your DEA license, which allows you to prescribe buprenorphine. And they said that you have to do a couple of ridiculous things like take an eight-hour course, then submit a notification of an intent to apply for a waiver to the federal government. And then sometime between four and six weeks later, you'll get an email back or a letter in the mail that says, congratulations, you now have your your DAX waiver. Now, some folks who are listening are thinking, why the hell do we do any of it? Uh, why <laughs> I'm wondering is any the same thing. <laughs> right? Why yeah. is any of this necessary? I agree. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the exact reason, the embodiment of why policymakers really do need to be well-informed uh, and have access to physicians and clinicians who are on the ground. These are policymakers who got into a room and decided Hmm. I don't know. A work day is like what? Eight hours? Yeah. Just make it like an eight hour work day of training for this medication. So it, it is not rational. I understand the intent. And the bottom line is we should X the X waiver. But until we do, you need to get waivered because this is the only way that we're going to be able to treat our patients and help them get into long-term recovery when they suffer from opioid addiction. Yeah. Well, Xing the X waiver sounds like it's not going to happen anytime soon, given the glacial pace of things glacial. in politics. So tell me, you kind of hinted at this, but you know, what are some obstacles or common excuses you hear from clinicians who, who know about the DEA X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, but don't get it? And what would you have to say to them? This is a, it's a great question. Absolutely great question, Michelle. Look, this is what the field of behavioral economics calls an action intention gap, right? Mm. Everyone intends, right, to do the right thing. Everyone intends yeah, to go we the mean well, mile, right? But when the rubber meets the road, the action is different. And so that gap between action and intention is what the field of behavioral economics uh, instructs us to act on using nudges to try and close that gap. And so my background is in the field of behavioral economics, behavioral science, and the study of how do we nudge decision-making. How do we close the gap between what you said you wanted to do and what you actually do? And so the three behavioral barriers that we have found, published a paper about this in Annals last year, when we surveyed folks and when we talked to our providers were these one, barriers around hassle bias, two, barriers around social norms, and three, salience barriers. So let's take each one of those quickly. Hassle bias. Hassle bias is the fact that any small action or extra administrative thing 
can add a huge hurdle, right, to someone completing a task. And so the bottom line is, this thing is riddled with hassle bias. You have to take an eight-hour course, which means you have to schedule it, which means you have to have time, which means you have to answer emails to figure out where you're going to slot this thing in. And then once you take the course, you have to do several other things after that, uh, completing a notification of intent, submitting your certificate of completion, et cetera. So this thing is riddled with hassle bias. And the bottom line is what Get Wavered is all about is making it absolutely easy and seamless to do it. So that's how we address the hassle bias piece. We have several different courses. They're all on Zoom. We'll get into that. The second barrier is around social norms. We don't do things if we think that no one else is going to, is doing them, right? Unfortunately, we, we saw this actually in an interesting way in the political context back in 2008, Hillary Clinton's campaign was basically saying, look, no one is voting. That's why we need you, Michelle, to vote. Well, what does that subtly suggest? So it suggests, well, if no one else is voting. Well, I'm not voting. I'm not voting. <laughs> so when we think that no one has these waivers, or when we think that no one is doing this treatment of opioid addiction, ED, then we think we can let ourselves off the hook. And the last barrier is, and the way that we address that with Get Wavered is, we make it public and celebrate people on social media and on Instagram, Twitter, uh, when people get wavered. And the last is salience. Unfortunately, we as ED docs don't get to see our successes. People who we helped get into recovery, who now got their job back, who now helped their family come back together, who got married, they don't come back to the ED and slap you high five. (laughs) But what we do see, unfortunately, are the folks who relapse. We see the folks who overdose. We see that 20-something-year-old who we reverse, who's upset and spitting mad. And so we begin to create this worldview where we say, well, it doesn't matter what I do for these patients anyway, because no one gets better from this. Well, it's actually not true. The majority of people get better when they are put into uh, effective evidence-based recovery treatment. This is not rocket science. And so we have to change our own story that we tell ourselves about these patients. And the way that we help with salience is we help to tell some of the stories of our patients who, who have been saved here at Mass General. What we do is we actually send people Uh, follow-ups. You know that patient you took care of six months ago, Michelle? Well, we followed up with them. They're back at school. They're going to graduate this semester. This is the latest social history from their PCP note. And so that, that kind of thing. So those are the different barriers that we've identified. What a cool way of framing these barriers. And in my mind, those are all fancy words. I think of it more as uh, red tape, peer pressure, and maybe biased population. And so that's how I'm going to take home from that. There are definitely some barriers there. And, and, and the way you framed it really helps illustrates of where potentially some solution points might come into play. So, you know, we talked about this getting the DEAX waiver and you actually have started attacking all of these barriers by something called the Get Wavered Remote Initiative. And I hadn't heard about that too much. Tell me more about that. Yep, yep. It's, it's an interesting and innovative approach that really was necessitated by COVID. Get Wavered started very simply. It started here at Mass General. We had one out of 50 of our docs who had their waiver initially. We launched this program that was infused with behavioral science interventions. We went from one out of 50 to just over 90% of our docs who actually got their waiver within about three months. Wow. And we took that model and we partnered with the NIDA, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse and the NIH, to begin to pilot this on a state level. The first partner was Texas, uh, which was incredible, partnering with the UT Texas system, and then with Nebraska, with the Department of Mental Health. 
we got a grant to basically scale this up dramatically and bring in about 10 other states. And we were had all these plans about, you know, sort of using this political organizing model and having on-site champions and having, you know, in-person classes. And then COVID hit, right? And it, and it then became not a good idea to hold classes of 20 to 30 people in large group settings. In fact, in many states, it became illegal to do so when the lockdown was, was happening. And so we approached, you know, our team and we had a decision to make. Do we stop doing what we're doing, right? And say, well, look, COVID threw it all out the window. Let's just sort of hang up the cleats. Or do we pivot and figure out what we can do next? And so we decided to pivot. We went to PCSS, which is the organizing body that controls all of the waiver training. And we said, look, let us do it on Zoom. They hadn't done it before via, via Zoom. So we said, look, let us do it on Zoom and let's see what we can do. We then went back to ASAP and we partnered with ASAP, started plotting with them and said, what is the max number of people we can get in the course? And ASAP told us a thousand because that's how big their license was. And so we said, okay, great, let's hit a thousand. So over the course of about four weeks, we ran a social media campaign, the Grass Tops campaign through the American Academy of Family Practitioners, ASAP, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, all these other sort of big organizing groups, and uh, started sending lots of emails, got up to 1,200 people who signed up for the course. And we had our first course on May 20th. It was really successful. At the end of the course, 801 people out of one course um, got through the training, got their certificate of completion. And, you know, an average course might be 15 people, right? In one class, we'd gotten 800 people waivered. And so that was the first inkling that, oh, actually, maybe there's something here. Maybe we can take this model. (laughs) Um, And so now we're doing this in a state fashion. And we just completed a course back in November with Get Waivered California. We have Get Waivered Ohio coming up on the 2nd of December. Get Waivered Michigan coming up on January 25th. And so every month we have several courses that we target to specific states. And to date, we've wavered about 3,000 people nationally. And the beauty of this is you can do this while you're at home in your living room, doing dishes, folding your laundry, right? This is adult learning. There's nobody here trying to, you know, check in and, you know, we leave it up to the the adults to figure out how they want to learn. And, uh, you know, folks can do this on Zoom, which is really great. Wow. You don't do things on a small scale, do you? And, you know, for all the negativity that comes along with COVID, maybe this was the the special, perfect, lucky timing push to get you to start getting these waivers to people at a factor of 10, 20, 30 times what would be the normal pace. So kudos to you for, for exponentially scaling this up. It's really kind of incredible to hear about all these success stories. All right. Well, let's let's say everyone who's listening to this podcast is going to sign up. What what kind of details do I need to know about this waiver process? What am I in for here? Yeah, yeah. It's a great, great question. So all you have to do in order to start the process is go to our remote site. So it's getwaivered.com slash remote. Everyone can attend. It's open for medical students, for interns, for residents, for attendings, for fellows, and importantly, for PAs and NPs. Mid-level providers can also get a waiver as well. Hmm. And so this really is open to everyone who wants to be involved and who wants to get their waiver. You'll see when you get to that site, our upcoming courses, all you got to do is click register and you can enroll. And folks often ask, is this something that employers want to see, right? Is this something that I can put on my CV or my resume? And this absolutely 100% is. In some emerging departments, it's actually something that's mandatory, there's a group that we work with with ASAP called EQUAL, the ASAP EQUAL initiative, 
where they're actually working with democratic groups across the country to uh, figure out how to tie Medicare reimbursements to the wavering of their providers in the department. So for example, if a department has over 75% of their department wavered, they're able to figure out how to get payments in to reimburse that department, that hospital. So there are some financial incentives too that you know we're just beginning to emerge in the federal landscape. And so, and not only is it zero financial reason, but it's just the right thing to do, right? This is an evidence-based way to help people get their lives back. Yeah, I love that. You are doing both the carrot, which is making the hassles go away, and a little bit of the stick, which is to be employed, you need to have this potentially. And you can think of it like ACLS and PALS and DEAX waiver. You put it all on that list of your credentials. It seems a very natural place for it to be at. So that's wonderful. I I do have a a question, which I didn't tell you I was going to spring on you, but you mentioned medical students could take the waiver course even before their state licensure. Can they skip that and get this DEA waiver? It's a great question. It's a fantastic question. The answer is yes. What? Your waiver training will result in something called a certificate of completion. All right. So that's the thing that like you get that says, high five, you took the course Excellent. That certificate is what you need once you get your DEA number to actually apply for your DEAX waiver. So you can take that training whenever you want. You just need to have that certificate by the time you get your DEA number. So, you know, what we tell our medical students is, hey, make sure that you take a screenshot of this certificate of completion. Everyone at this point should have a Google Drive folder that has all their medical licensure stuff in it. or, 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 some, or some folder on your desktop, I don't know, some digital storage device that has all this. Well, this goes right there next to your NPI number and the login for your locker and the resident call room and all the other things, right? <laughs> Put it right yeah. in there. And then it doesn't expire, your- this, this screenshot? It oh, that yeah. is a good thing to know. No. Well, I don't know what med students, you got some free time now, do it, do it now. Right? Yeah, I love that a lot. So, you know, I always like to be in the know for things on the horizon, things that's not public knowledge. So a little birdie told me that something may be in the works for residents. Anything you want to share with us? Anything cool on the horizon? Tell us, tell us. That's right. That's right. You always, always, always have the latest, <laughs> Michelle. You I know, love it. We are partnering with ASAP, American College of Emergency Physicians, to launch a residency petition. Oh, they love competitions. Yeah. That's right. And there's some money involved. <laughs> oh, they love money even okay. more. <laughs> Not just bragging rights, but money for ice cream parties oh, yes. or whatever you want to use it for. <laughs> we, uh, in, in the summer of 2021, are partnering with ASAP to organize a, na- a national competition among the 238 or so. Every time I check, there's another new residency program. Yeah. Uh, 230 something residency programs to see which residency program can get the highest proportion of their residents, uh, co-residents, uh, wavered. And so each residency program will have a champion who will be sort of the on-the-ground organizer um, and will help with digital courses, will help with on-the-ground courses if, if and when we get to that point where we have less concern of having people in space. And we're going to shout people out on places like social media, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, uh, feature them on our website. But there is a cash prize you're interested, all you have to do is you can email me if you want to know more and be on the cutting edge of this. 
uh, email me at alistair at getwavered.com. So that's A-L-I-S-T-E-R at getwavered.com. That is amazing. And also, don't forget, you could also still go to the website, getwavered.com slash remote for training in general. That's I, that's a wrap. I, I couldn't have said it any better myself. So thanks for joining us. You know, as the emergency department continues to feel the brunt of, of public health crises, and I'm looking at you, COVID, HIV, and gun violence, it's refreshing to see a national movement that, that addresses the opioid epidemic And with your efforts of the Get Wavered campaign, I am sure it is an excellent hand. So congratulations and continued success to you, Alistair, and your wonderful team. Thanks for joining the podcast.